Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you. Here we are in August. It's my favorite month of the year for Saints feast days. So buckle up and get ready for some amazing feast days that God's grace will pour through to us. We love that. Today, I'm hoping to pour through some encouragement for you regarding confession as a healing sacrament. That's right. This is now the fourth part in my series on confession, five sentences that will heal your life. I did it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll make up for it, and I'll never do it again. I hope you find it to be a blessing. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Today, we're going to focus on the theme of mercy. About 10 years ago, I was, was back in the year 2000, uh, right around then, I was, um, uh, at that point in my, my life in ministry, I would travel a lot. I would speak at conferences around the country and um and that was something that was a typical part of my, my life in ministry until kids started to come. God gave us the gift of children. And then I knew it was important for me to be able to stay home. Well, in this transition time, I would still be speaking at conferences. And um, what I would do is I would try to leave the conference as soon as I could to be able to get home as quickly as possible. And my goal would be to try to get home in time for the kids to be able to help them uh, be put to bed. If I could get to the airport early enough, I might be able to get on an earlier flight. Especially if I was in some kind of smaller town, I could get an earlier connecting flight and then get on an earlier major flight. This happened one time. Uh, I, I got out of the conference a little bit early, made it in time to the small airport, got on a small plane that got me to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And when I got off the plane, I immediately went to the departure board to see when the next flight leaving for Seattle was. Lo and behold, there's a flight that says, final boarding, it's happening now. So I started to sprint through the airport, made my way to the gate, and I saw that there were still people loading onto the plane. I said, oh, wonderful. So I went up, I showed them my ticket for the next flight, which was hours away, hours uh, away. And I said, I'm on the next flight. Can I get on this flight? They said, no problem. We have some seats. You can go on standby. Great. They said, just sit over here, and then we'll take care of you after we load the others. I said, well, can I call my wife? This is before I had a cell phone. And uh, I said, can I just call my wife? There's a set of phones right over there. Just wave me down when you need me and I'll come right on to the plane. I want to call her, let her know so she can pick me up early. No problem, no problem. So I go call up Carrie on the phone. She's all excited. I'm going to get to come home early. I'm talking with her about the conference. And um, all of a sudden I look and I notice the woman who's taken the tickets has let in the last person. And then she's going towards the door to close the door to the ramp. I said, Carrie, I got to go. They're, they're closing the door. And I ran over. I said, no, 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 stop, 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 as the woman closes the door. And I said, I'm supposed to be on that plane. I, I was flying standby. She said, I'm sorry. Once the door's closed, it can't be opened. But I mean, the woman had just closed the door, and people were still walking down that ramp. They could hear my voice. So I shared with this daughter of God my own opinions about her policy. 
which did not win me any friends and influence people. Uh, and I stomped away back to the phones and I told Carrie what had happened. And um, uh, as, uh, as I did, all of a sudden I looked up and I saw the woman that was behind the, the counter who had told me that she'd get me a seat on that plane. I said, Carrie, there's the woman, the woman who told me, I'm gonna go tell her what happened. And Carrie said, no, as I hung up the phone. And I go storming back to the counter. And the woman, uh, she looks up and she sees me coming. And all of a sudden it was like, her mouth dropped open, her eyes opened wide. She realized what had happened. She forgot about me. And so I looked at her, I said, hi, remember me? You said that you would get me onto that flight. And all of a sudden, there was another young lady behind the counter, and she said, no. She said she would try to get you on that flight. Whereupon I told this daughter of God that she could mind her own business because I was talking to this other woman. And then I began to share some more about her own experience of customer service. And this went on for a little bit. And then I went storming back to the phone, called Carrie, and I told her what happened. And Carrie listened to me share the story, and then she said to me, Tom, you need to repent. And I said, hello? Hello? What? Carrie, I, I'm having a hard time hearing you. She said, Tom, you have to go ask those women for forgiveness. And I said, what? She said, go ask these, these women for forgiveness. You won't be at peace until you do it. And then she said, I'll pray for you. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> and I walked back to the counter kind of shuffling back. And the two women look up and they're kind of like, ooh. And I'm like, the first thing I said to them was, forgive me. I'm sorry. Now, you did not deserve to have me say to you what I said. And as soon as they heard me say, I'm sorry, forgive me, what I did was wrong, they just visibly relaxed. <sighs> oh, thank you for saying that. You know, it's hard in our jobs when we're doing the final boarding, things get happen. And I told them I was trying to get home and why I was so upset. And um, by the end, we're arm in arm singing Kumbaya. You know, this is uh, the change that's happened. And, um, and that, that's the power, the power of saying, forgive me, asking for mercy. I'm proposing in this book, there are five sentences that will heal our life. Five sentences that are associated with the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, with going to confession. Those sentences are, I did it, I'm sorry, forgive me, I will make up for it, and I will never do it again. These are the sentences that are associated with what are called the acts of the penitent. And if you think it's difficult to say, I did it, to accuse yourself of what you've done, to accuse yourself of those things you're ashamed of that you'd rather have hidden, that is difficult. It's more difficult, we've also we've discovered, to say, I did it and I'm sorry. Now we're gonna face the difficulty and the challenge of saying, forgive me. What is distinctly difficult about forgive me when you compare it to, I did it and I'm sorry? Well, the answer is that you can say, I did it, and you can accomplish that task all by yourself. You can say, I did it and mean it, and you've accomplished it. You can say, I did it and I'm sorry all by yourself. And if you're truly sorry, if you truly have that gift of contrition, that sorrow rooted in love, you've accomplished it. But what about saying, forgive me? When you're saying, forgive me, it's a petition. It's no longer a statement. It's a request. And when you make a request, when you petition, 
there is now a putting yourself into someone's hands. You actually are now awaiting that person's response. In other words, you cannot accomplish the act that you're seeking to accomplish without someone else. When you say, forgive me, it's not completed until what's happened. You are given forgiveness. That is a very vulnerable place to be. Well, what is it that is going to move us to take the risk? What is it that is going to stir within us the the motivation, the, the strength, the energy to not only bring out into the open what we want to keep hidden, not only to express that with sorrow, but to request forgiveness in a situation when we've done something hateful and to ask for a blessing. There's one word, that's the answer. And until we know that word, until we understand that word from the inside, until we have an encounter with the reality of that word in our lives, it's something, a confession is something that will remain foreign to us. It's something that will still be something we'll avoid and run from. But once we know this one word from the inside, once we've experienced it and know it as real in our lives, we'll run to confession. And that one word, mercy. When we experience the meaning and the power of mercy in our lives, we will run to confession. And so I'm talking about uh, forgiveness and saying uh, that petition, forgive me. But in doing so, I'm going to shift the focus away from looking at this sacrament as being about confession and focusing in on the sacrament being about reconciliation. Why? Well, confession is what we do in the sacrament. Reconciliation is what God does in the sacrament. So reconciliation, well, that's a word we hear in church, and it's one of those words that's difficult to define. What is reconciliation, right? You reconcile your checkbook, right? What is reconciliation? Well, it's about restoring union or restoring unity between two people or two parties or two groups. It's about repairing damage. When a relationship has been broken or harmony has been disturbed or the peace in a relationship has been diminished, The restoration of harmony and peace in the relationship is called reconciliation. Now, this is a healing work. In fact, we see in the scriptures many instances where Jesus' act of of healing is connected with the uh, physical healing is connected with the act of the forgiveness of sins, right? We have uh, um, the... The, the man that's carried in Mark chapter 2, he's carried to the, uh, uh, that low, lowered down through the roof, right? And he's healed and his sins are forgiven. We have the woman with the flow of blood. She touches Jesus and she is healed and she's restored to the community because now the, the, the flow of blood, which is her physical infirmity, would leave her outside of relationships with others. She's restored into relationships with others. The woman at the well, Jesus reveals her situation to her. She's restored back to union to, uh, to the community. She's restored back into relationship with the community that has left her separate. And so there is this healing effect of God's work of reconciling us to himself in the sacrament. And the catechism draws attention to the healing effects of going to confession. The catechism in paragraph 1468 says this, The whole power of the sacrament of penance consists in restoring us 
to God's grace and joining us with him in an intimate friendship. Reconciliation with God is thus the purpose and effect of this sacrament. For those who receive the sacrament of penance with a contrite heart and religious disposition, reconciliation is usually followed by peace and serenity of conscience with strong spiritual reconciliation. Indeed, the sacrament of reconciliation with God brings about a true spiritual resurrection, restoration of the dignity and blessings of the life of the children of God, of which the most precious is friendship with God. Wow. To think that all of those are the the fruits, the benefits of, of going to this sacrament, you'd think, who would be avoiding this? And yet we do. So let's dig into this a bit more and see what does it mean. Well, let's, let's look at these uh, in, in a little bit more detail. First of all, reconciliation restores us to God's grace. You remember how I offered a reflection on the effects of sin in the first session, and one of the effects of sin is that it is diminishing the flow of God's grace in our lives. You know, I use the image of the hose and gashing the hose and how there's a diminishment of God's grace in our lives, that flow of living water. Well, that's restored to us. That sense of, of flowing in the vital relationship with God is one of the things that's restored to us. God's strength lives in us now as a result of this sacrament. Second is reconciliation joins us with God in an intimate friendship. An intimate friendship. That's a beautiful um, concept to think about. Friendship with God and an intimate friendship with God. Do you remember Jesus? He talked about us as his friends in John 15. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've told you everything I've heard from my father. Now, this gives us the reason why we go to the sacrament of reconciliation. Because Jesus intends us to be in an intimate friendship with him. But who are the friends of Jesus? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, why are we going to confession? Because I have not done what you have commanded me. And what gets restored to us is in being forgiven the effects of sin, which is the breaking of the friendship. Ah, that's what gets diminished. That was what gets damaged. That's what gets hurt. Remember I talked about sin's personal? Sin's personal. It's not just breaking a law. It's breaking a heart. It's damaging a friendship. This kind of relationship with Jesus. He's poured himself into our hands. He's put himself into our hands. In the Eucharist, he puts himself into our hands. Out of his consuming love for us, he becomes consumable by us. He wants that intimate friendship. And in sinning, we diminish that friendship, we damage, or we break the friendship. Now, what's the fruit of friendship with the Lord? He says, I've told you everything I've heard from my Father. I've told you everything I've heard from my Father. What I want to say is this, the fruit of friendship is living knowledge of the living God. Did you hear that? The best way I can say the the fruit of friendship is that God becomes the living God. For many, many, many Catholics, believing in God is believing in a concept. 
for many Catholics, believing in God is, oh yeah, I accept in my mind that there is a God who created this world, but there's not a sense of concrete connection to a personal presence. There's no sense of a personal presence. Now you need to know it's a gift. It's something we witness to as a husband and wife. We talk about it to our kids. It's something we pray for for our kids, and it's something we ask our kids to pray for. We lead them in prayer to invite them to to ask the Lord for that personal relationship. I can't give my kids a personal relationship. I can talk about its reality. I can witness to it in the difference it makes, but I can't give it to them. But I can turn them to the Lord and say, ask him. He wants you to have it. Have you sensed it? Otherwise, God just might remain a concept. When God becomes the living God, faith becomes real. Faith becomes based on a friendship. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, third, reconciliation brings peace and serenity of conscience. Okay, that's all I need to know to go to confession right there, right? Our conscience is in our heart, is the depth of our hearts. It's, the, it's where the voice of God is. It's that intimate place where we have that communion and communication with the Lord. Well, that gets disturbed. There's a cloudedness to how the Lord is at work in, in the depths of our hearts when we've sinned. Well, in going to confession, one of the fruits, one of the gifts that's given to us is a calmness in our lives that allows our lives to become put in order, put in order, ordinance, put in order. Oh yes, I'm now in right relationship with God. I've been restored. I now have that clean vessel, that clean uh, capability of communicating with God. And, And there's a sense of now calmness that allows me to be able to get a clear look into the depths of my heart. You have a a clearer path into the depths of your heart when you go to confession. That's the fruit. Who wouldn't want that? That's the fruit of going to confession. Not only this, reconciliation brings a strong spiritual consolation. Strong spiritual consolation. We talked about friendship, intimate friendship is this sense of God is living. We talk about um, uh, serenity and peace in conscience. There's a a way of being able to connect into the depths. Strong spiritual consolation to be consoled has to do with nearness. There's a sense of not only harmony, not only serenity, but nearness and comfort. Comfort. That's what awaits us in confession, not terror on the way in and relief on the way out, not anxiety and fear on the way in 
and the checking the box, the duty has been completed on the way out. That's a sadness. That's missing out on the personal, incredibly intimate relational dimension of the healing effects of this sacrament of reconciliation. And then two other effects. Reconciliation brings restoration of the dignity and blessings of the life of the children of God. What gets restored to us is the dignity and blessings of the life of the children of God. What do we get? A fresh start, a new beginning. Who wouldn't want a fresh start or a new beginning? And just like the prodigal son comes home, right? This kid who blew it, right? Blew the inheritance, dishonored the name, dishonored his own dignity, and yet he comes home to the father and what happens? Finest robe on him. It's a sign of his being welcomed back into the family, a sign of a restoration of his dignity, a ring on his finger. It's a sign of the authority that's his because he's a child, not because of what he's done, but because of whose he is. Did you hear that? The restoration into the family is not because of what he's done, but because of what God's done. God's made him a part of the family, and he is ever faithful. To be able to know that, that restores us to this sense of blessings and dignity of being God's children. Uh, And then lastly, reconciliation brings about a spiritual resurrection. Well, there, there... there is something required of us to be resurrected. In order to be resurrected, what do you have to be? The right answer is dead. Only the dead can be resurrected. And so to say that reconciliation, this great healing sacrament, is so powerful, it brings about a spiritual resurrection. What does that say about sin? We've already talked about it. It brings about spiritual death. It's a spiritual disease. All sin is a spiritual disease. It makes us sick in our souls, sick in our spirits. Venial sins do this. But venial sins create this momentum towards a mortal sin, mortal or deadly sin, which kills the life of God within us, cuts us off from that union with the life-giving, uh, <clears throat> life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. So reconciliation brings about a spiritual resurrection. Remember Lazarus in the Gospel of John. This helps us really understand and reflect a bit more on the the devastating impact of sin. Lazarus, how long was he in the tomb? Four days. This guy is dead. I mean, he is gone dead. Uh, They make a point of four days. Why? Probably it was four days, but also because they believed on the fourth day it was actually the decaying of the body began. So there's a, a point made here that he's dead. And um, Jesus shows up, and what does he say? Roll away the stone, right? Jesus, he's dead, right? No, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then what does he do? He still says one word. Anybody remember what that was? He says three words. <laughs> he says, Lazarus, come out. Sin is like this in our lives. Cuts us off from the living. Cuts us off from relationships. Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever felt in a tomb a tomb of your own making. That's what sin does. It puts us in a place where we feel isolated, cut off, with no way out, no exit, and it's our own fault. We are just trapped. We are just dead. And spiritually we are, until what happens? Until someone comes along and says, you know that big rock that's in your way? 
roll it away. And until someone has the power to name our situation by naming us and by the power of that word beckoning us out, that's what happens in confession. Lazarus is a name that means something. Names mean things, right? Do you know what the name Lazarus means? It means one whom God helps. Who are you when you go to confession? You, my friends, are Lazarus. Why? Because you are the one whom God helps. You're Lazarus. John chapter 11 tells your story. Confession is John 11. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come out of that sin that leaves you in a place of death. You're going to remain there until I call you out. And then when Lazarus comes out, what happens? He just jumps up and down? No, he's still bound until Jesus says, unbind him and let him go free. And one strip at a time, they would have unbound the cloths that would have kept the burial cloth tied to him until he could have been set free. What does Lazarus have to do to be set free? He has to stand there. He has to let himself be set free. That's what's asked of us. Let the Lord heal you. Let him pour his mercy on you. Let him call you out of that darkness. Let him set you free. Now, this also brings up one of the frightening dimensions uh, of the drama of our lives. It is the biggest of all dramas, and it's one that we don't like to talk about or think about or really face. And that's the drama that our lives confess one thing in the end. Our lives confess Christ, hopefully, on earth. But you know what? Sometimes I confess Christ. Sometimes I confess my own ego. Sometimes I confess that God is central in my life. Sometimes I confess that I'm first in my own life, right? And so I stumble along and I bumble along and I thank God for the mercy of having time to repent and get a fresh start and a new beginning. But there is a danger about being spiritually dead and physically alive. And that is, one day, physically, I'm no longer going to be alive. Physically, I will die. And the drama is, what happens when we die physically and we're in a state of spiritual death? What happens when our physical state becomes a mirror of our spiritual state? That's the drama of what is at stake in all of our lives, namely the God-given destiny for our lives. What's God destined us all for? Heaven. He created us all to be with him in heaven forever. God has a universal salvific plan. He wants us all to be with him forever in heaven. That He has said yes to our lives. That's his one word over our lives, yes. The question is whether we will respond, our confession will be yes back. And the drama is, if we're spiritually dead and we die physically, we are thwarting God's plan for our lives. Thwarting it. What am I talking about? I'm avoiding the word. I don't want to even say it. God wants heaven for us, but if we die in a state of physical death, uh, spiritual death when we at the end of our physical lives, that brings out the other side, hell. That's our saying no to God with our lives. The summation of our lives ends up being a no to God. Now, we oftentimes maybe grew up with this idea God condemns us to hell. God condemns no one to hell. The church says in the catechism, God permits the definitive self-exclusion, the definitive 
self-exclusion from what God intended for our lives. What did God intend for our lives? Heaven. What are we doing? We are definitively, permanently, completely, and finally excluding ourselves from what God wills for us. God wills for us heaven. We say, no, I choose hell. That's the drama of being spiritually dead and then dying physically. This is something that is, you know, it's not, it's not worth joking about and it's not worth trying to avoid. Shouldn't make it a constant focus for your life. Um, but, um, you know, there is a, a whole tradition in our lives that when it comes to death, we want to pray for a certain kind of death. And what we pray for in our tradition is actually quite different than what we typically ask for in our own personal lives. What we ask for typically is quick and painless. <laughs> Lord, I want to die in my sleep. Quick and painless. Uh, but the, um, the, in our tradition, the two words that are, are asked, uh, associated with death, you know what those are? Happy and prepared death. And what do we want to be saved from? An unprepared death. An unprepared or unexpected death is what we want to avoid. The quick and painless might be unprepared and unexpected. What we want to pray for is a happy, prepared death. And so, uh, you know, and that's why we have what? The, who's the patron saint of the dying? St. Joseph. Why? When he's dying, who's he got with him? Mary and Jesus. Woo! Right? He's, he's ready to go. Uh, but that's very different than, um, than the way we tend to look at it. And so hell is a real possibility. Heaven is the reality God made us for. And that's why God mercifully offers us salvation. Now, I don't want you to be thinking all the time about judgment. One day we will be judged. And our whole lives will be judged as either a yes to God or a no to God. Now, many of us have a long purgatory to face because while we were yes, there's still a whole bunch of remnants of no in our lives. But wouldn't it be helpful if we could find on earth a way to anticipate the judgment that's coming? Judgment's coming. It is coming. But wouldn't it be helpful if we could have an anticipation of that face-to-face -face encounter with God after we die? Say yes. Yes. Guess what? There is a place we can go where we will have an anticipation of our last judgment. You know what that's called? Confession. Hmm. Listen to what the Catechism says. Paragraph 1470. In this sacrament, the sinner placing himself before the merciful judgment of God, anticipates in a certain way the judgment to which he will be subjected at the end of his earthly life. Wow. What awaits you in confession is a, is a little foretaste, a little anticipation of what's going to await you at the end of your life. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating to think about that. For it is now in this life that we're offered the choice between life and death. And it is only by the road of conversion that we can enter the kingdom from which one is excluded by grave sin. And converting to Christ through penance and faith, the sinner passes from death to life and does not come into judgment. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is when we see our lives as saying, I did it, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'll make up for it, I'll never do it again. When we see our lives as moving towards confession, as a way of expressing what we're confessing with our lives, 
that I am willing to bring out into the open what I want to keep hidden, to say it with true sorrow rooted in love, and to ask for forgiveness, what am I doing? I'm relating to my whole life in light of God. And so going to confession, running to confession, is a way of saying, I don't fear what awaits me at the end of my life. I'm running towards that because I'm running home to my father. I'm running home with love and the sorrow rooted in love for what I've done. I'm confessing with my whole life what I've done. And so when I go to confession and I make a regular practice of confession, the fear of death disappears. The fear of death disappears because I'm running home. Death is the path home. So uh, this is the ultimate in the end fruit of confession. Now, in order to, um, to explore this more fully, I want to dig a bit into the concept of mercy. Now, I want to dig a bit into the concept of mercy. And I want to talk about uh, mercy in three ways. That mercy sees, mercy suffers, and mercy gives rise to mercy. Or mercy gives birth to being merciful. Mercy sees, mercy suffers, and mercy gives birth to being merciful. The first is mercy sees. Mercy is another one of those words that's difficult to define. My favorite definition is that mercy is showing favor to someone who deserves the opposite. Did you hear that? You deserve the opposite, but I'm going to show you favor. My kids have been working on a virtue every week. The first week it was honesty. The second week it was loyalty. The third week it was the... Um, the generosity, the fourth week, it was being a good Samaritan. The fifth week was prayer. Now, along the way, we gave our kids choices. Uh, when we first introduced the choice of mercy versus generosity, and they said, well, what's generosity and what's mercy? And I said to my kids, well, generosity is when you receive something and you try to give back more to the person you received from them. You try to give more, right? You outdo them and what they've done for you in terms of the good that they've given you. Oh, okay, and what's mercy? Well, mercy is when something, someone says, does, does something bad to you, you do something good in return. Generosity. <laughs> we'll choose generosity. You know, they were like, what? Did they do something mean? I can do something back nice? We'll choose generosity. And the next one was good Samaritan spirit. It's when you extend yourself to reach out to the one in need. Or mercy. Good Samaritan. <laughs> what we realized was our kids were never going to choose mercy. They were never going to choose it. And so it was chosen for them for Holy Week. <laughs> so this week, they're reflecting on mercy. Mercy is showing favor to someone who deserves the opposite. We don't like that. We want justice. We want everyone to get what's coming to them. And you know, when I think about the effects of, of going to confession as the forgiveness of our sins that restores all these things. I'll be honest with you. The way I kind of thought about going to confession growing up was, uh, especially when my faith woke up you know, when I was 18, was I go to confession and essentially this was kind of the bargain I had in my mind. You know, I'm going to go and I'm going to confess these sins, but I've only done this many sins, but I've done this many good things. And I've done way more good things than bad things. And the bad things I've done aren't that bad compared to all the good things I've done. And certainly compared to all the things that these people over here have done. And, and that's not mercy. That's justice. That's justice. That's thinking that somehow when you take out the scales and you weigh things in the balance, I'm just getting what I deserve. Our spiritual lives, as important as justice is in the world, in our, in our 
common relationships, our spiritual lives are not based on justice. They're absolutely based on mercy. My brothers and sisters have to know this. When it comes to our relationship with God, we do not get what we deserve. Jesus got what we deserved. On the cross, he got what we deserved. Our sin is not just the breaking of a law. It's the breaking of a heart. It's the betraying of a relationship. It's not listening. It's disobeying. And if Jesus gave us what we deserved, if God gave us what we deserved in that breaking of the relationship, the relationship would have remained broken. We would have been stuck in the tomb here and forever cut off from our own destiny. That was where we would have ended up based on what we deserved. Thanks be to God, we don't get what we deserve. There's a basic issue with justice. You think of justice and the lady justice with the scales in front of the Supreme Court. What is it about lady justice? She's blindfolded. Justice is blind. Mercy is not blind. Mercy sees. Jesus from the cross, what does he say? First thing, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mercy sees exactly what's being done and offers favor in exchange. It's only if we had the confidence to believe that God is not a vengeful God who wants to treat us in justice and give, give us what we deserve in our relationship with him. It's only when we can get beyond that to realize that the father of mercies is saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners to repentance. It's Jesus who was chastised and who was, um, who was put down and attacked by the religious leaders of the day because he did what? He ate with sinners. He ate with prostitutes. Remember, can you imagine, you know, you get named by what you're identified with. To call someone a prostitute means that they're engaged in a certain activity. To call someone a sinner means they must be doing some pretty bad things if their whole identity is identified by the word sinner. You're eating with sinners. To eat with them means I'm in communion with them. And the whole idea of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was, no, we have to stand apart from them. Jesus is, no, we, I have to seek them out. I want to call them home. And it was in that context that he gave the parables in Luke 15, including the parable of the prodigal son. He's coming to seek out those who are apart. He wants to be in communion with them. He wants to draw them home. It's when we're convinced of that, that God is seeking us out, that we don't come crawling miserably home and asking for a fresh start. No, it's the love of God that's beckoning us home like a magnet pulling us. Mercy draws us because mercy wants to set us free from the, the, the hell of our own making. But mercy not only sees, mercy suffers. If I had to propose to you a passage of scripture that best exemplifies what happens in confession, it would be Mark 1, 40 to 45. In fact, I, 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 in my talks, I repeat it several times. Mark 1, 40 to 45. Write it down, write it down, write it down. Because this is confession. It's the story of the leper who approaches Jesus. A leper approached Jesus with a request, kneeling down as he addressed him. The leper said, if you will to do so, you can cure me. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do will it be cured. The leprosy left him then and there, and he was cured. Jesus gave him a stern warning and sent him on his way. Not a word to anyone now. Go off and show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself what Moses prescribed. That should be proof for them. 
The man went off speaking freely about the matter, making the whole story public. As a result of this, it was no longer possible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He stayed in desert places, yet people kept coming to him from all sides. Now remember, uh, here is this man who is a leper. What is the situation of a leper? A leper was a man who, by his very physical condition, his unhideable physical condition, leprosy was visible, this man would be cut off from the community, including cut off from his family, cut off from the temple, the worship of God. Why? Leprosy was thought to be communicable. How? Through touch. You get too close, you touch a leper, you could become a leper too. And so where did the lepers stay? They stayed outside the community in the desert. And what would they do? How would they eat? Well, in order for them to come into town to get food, they would carry a stick with bells on it to warn people, a leper's coming, clear the way. And they would come to certain places at certain times where food would be left for them so they could then literally survive. But can you imagine being a person whose existence is identifiable and not hideable? I am someone who's cursed by God. I'm in a condition of being cursed by God. I am ashamed of my condition and there's nothing I can do to hide it. And my condition literally cuts me off from God, my family, and the very community. This is not a good condition. It's this person who approaches Jesus, kneels down, and says to him, if you will to do so, you can cure me. Now understand the meaning of the cure. What would happen for this man to be physically cured? Being physically cured, he's going to be restored to what? to life in the community, restored to his family, restored to his ability to then enter into the worship of God in the temple. For him, a physical cure means removing the curse, removing the curse so that he's restored into friendship as part of God's people. For him, the cure means everything. Kneels down, a position of a beggar, pleading, if you will to do so, you can cure me. And, and it says here in, in English, moved with pity. It's only one word in Greek. The word in Greek is a word that has as its root meaning from the, the, the inner core of Jesus' being, from his innards, from, from, from the inner core of his being. You can't get any deeper the place out of which Jesus speaks. That's that word in Greek. From the inner depths of Jesus' being, he stretches out his hand, he touches the untouchable, at the place of his shame and being cursed, he touches him and says, I do will it, be cured. He touches this man and says the leprosy left him then and there. It's gone. Now, he tells him, go show yourself to the priest in the temple. Restore to worship of God. Go show yourself to the priest. Don't tell anybody. What does he do? The grateful guy goes and tells everybody. And what does it say? As a result of this, Jesus was, it was no longer possible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He stayed in desert places. Wait a minute. That's a theme we've heard before. Who can't enter a town openly but remains in desert places? Lepers. How does Jesus cure the man's leprosy? Jesus takes on this man's curse. 
He takes on this man's shame. He takes on all that keeps this man separated from family, out of relationship with God, cut off from the community, all that causes this man to be cut off from God and feel cursed. Jesus doesn't just say, be healed and healing falls from heaven. It's not a magic healing dispenser, but Jesus heals this man through touch. Remember, touch communicates. Touch communicates to the man the restoration, the reconciliation, the healing that comes from God that's both physical and spiritual and relational in every dimension of being. Jesus communicates from the depths of his being, I will you to be made whole, restored, set free. I will this for you. This is what I will for you through this touch. And not only do I will it for you, but I will it for you by drawing out of you all the poison, drawing from your very being all of that. I take it into myself. It is now mine. I, I, I make it my own. I identify myself with your curse. I am the curse. That's what happens on the cross, is that his will for our healing is not only from the core of his being, where there's this transfer of his life into us, but he takes on himself our curse and all the effects of that curse. He becomes sin. The one who knew no sin becomes sin so that we could become the very righteousness of God, the very holiness of God, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. That's what happens in confession. Do you remember what I said? Jesus said to the man, go show yourself to the priest. In our tradition, guess what that sentence has been reflected on as? An invitation to go show yourself to the priest in confession. What happens in confession? You kneel down. You show yourself. You bring out into the open what is hidden, the source of shame, the source of the curse, the source of the broken relationships with, between God, yourself, your family, and others, all that damage. You go bring out into the open and accuse yourself of what is hidden. You bring out into the open what is a source of shame in your life that you want to hide. You bring it out into the open and you say, if you will to do so, you can cure me. And through the absolution of the priest, Jesus Christ continues his ministry of touching Oftentimes in confession, when there's an act of reconciliation, the priest will actually reach out and touch. And there's that communication. If you could only see it, the priest is the one in whom Christ is living today to reconcile, to reach out and to touch and to say, and I absolve you from all your sins. Hear it. Be cured. You're set free. You're made whole. Mark 1, 40 to 45 is made real in this moment in history in every confessional and reconciliation room in the world. We only knew that. Go show yourself to the priest. Remember I said, mercy frees, I'm sorry, mercy sees, mercy suffers, and mercy also gives rise to mercy. It gives rise to being merciful. Now, this is one of those things where When someone sins against you, how do you take it? Someone speaks mean words, hurtful things, does awful deeds, betrays your friendship, right? Is unfaithful to you. What do we say? I graciously offer you a fresh start and a new beginning. Quickly and easily. (laughs) No, we don't do that. 
In fact, the Catechism is very realistic on this point, paragraph 1458. Uh, by receiving more frequently through this sacrament the gift of the Father's mercy, that's what's happening in confession, we are spurred to be merciful as He is merciful. That's what is supposed to grow in us. And yet, the Catechism also says in paragraph 2843, a very sober, realistic assessment of our capacity to do this. It is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense. Someone's offended you? Do you have the power not to feel it or to forget it? No. Time does not heal all wounds. We can bury them, but those hurts, even hurts from a long time ago, are still there. But the last thing I really want is to say, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. I actually don't want that, do I? Why? Because it is not in my power not to feel or to forget an offense. Well, this is not a happy thought. Well, what do we do about it? Well, the catechism doesn't end the paragraph there. Thanks be to God. The paragraph continues, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory in transforming the hurt into intercession. Now, those things are so stunning, you can't even believe that the catechism just said them. That injury is turned into compassion, copasio, suffering with. The very injury by which someone injured you in their thoughts, their words, their deeds, somehow they hurt you, the very injury that they caused you becomes a source for you to feel compassion towards them. Oh, by you hurting me, I'm suffering with you. And hurt is turned into intercession. Oh, your very hurt, hurting of me has been transformed in my life into my praying for you. How in the world can injury be turned into compassion? and hurt be turned into intercession. There's another phrase in there that gives the answer. Purifies the memory. The purification of memory. Purification, when something gets purified, all that is impure, all the dross, all the elements that are not clean get cleansed. Remember now, there's a way that the heart and the memory are gonna be cleansed. The memories of the hurts, the memories of the offenses, the memories even of the bad, hurtful relationship. All of that can be cleansed. All of that can be renewed. How? By the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit. Okay, the heart offers itself to the Holy Spirit. What does that look like and what happens? Well, how what it looks like is, literally, Holy Spirit, receive my heart and receive all the hurts that are in it. Receive all of those people who have hurt me that still I hold resentment towards, anger towards, hateful thoughts towards, desire for vengeance. These are things that live in me towards these people, Lord, please. I don't know how to deal with them. I can't not feel or forget. So I give you my heart and I give you those people. Please take them quickly, right? Now, how does the Holy Spirit purify the memory? What actually happens here? There's a transference. Remember the transference that occurs when Jesus touches the man at the point of his leprosy, his shame, his pain? There's this transference. All of that comes onto Jesus and Jesus brings all healing. Do you remember how the cross confesses the sins of the world and the love of God? Jesus identified himself with all sin and also displayed all God's love and the merciful heart of God. Well, what happens? 
We offer our hearts to God and our memories to God, and the Holy Spirit does this transforming work whereby the very hurt by which I was hurt, the hurtful word, the hurtful deed, those very memories become transformed. The Lord does this mysterious work of transforming. How? Remember now, Jesus suffered all the sufferings that have ever happened in this world that are a result of sin, including the sins that I'm the victim of. That means that any sin can be now linked to Jesus' death on the cross so that now the hurt by which I'm hurt becomes transferred. And now the hurt that is now transferred onto Jesus so that he's the one who takes the hurt. He takes the poison out of me the resentment out of me, he draws it into himself and he replaces it with his healing. He replaces it with his compassion. And that means that he can now turn all of those hurts, all of those hurt memories into places of encountering him. It's no longer the memory of the hurt, but it's now the experience of the union with Christ crucified. And the more I can experience Christ crucified in my heart rather than the hurtful memory, the more I'm going to be able to do what Christ did. Now I'm going to literally suffer with. And hurt will be intercession. It'll show up in little things. Someone will say something or do something mean to you. And what you'll be able to say is this. It must be hard being you. Have you ever said to yourself, wow, if you're willing to say that ugliness to me in public, I wonder what you're saying to your spouse in private. I wonder what you're saying to yourself. It must be really hard being you to spew out and display, to bring out into the open such darkness must reflect a kind of darkness in your own life. Wow, I need to pray for you. And the hurt that you've just hurt me, wow, I'm going to offer that to the Lord. Lord, that hurt, I just give it to you. Please bring salvation to him. Wow. We don't begin there. You know, We don't begin there. But the work of God can bring us there. That's the work of mercy. Mercy sees. Mercy suffers. And mercy increases within ourselves a capacity to show mercy to others. It's the Holy Spirit who will set us free. Nothing is impossible with God. Well, I do encourage you to open your heart to the mercy of God. Open your heart to God's mercy and approach this sacrament, not only as it being about what you're doing, confessing, but primarily looking at it as an encounter with what God is doing, reconciling. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, I thank you and I praise you for the gift of your mercy. And I ask and I pray and I plead that you'd grant us that gift of the Holy Spirit that would cleanse our hearts and purify our memories so that we'd not only be open to receive your mercy in new ways, but that you'd extend mercy to others. Lord, especially that person that we have the most difficult time with, that relationship, that the part of our own past that is most difficult for us to, to desire mercy for, I just pray, Lord, that you would do a great supernatural work and bring that about in our lives. And make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.